Hey, I'm Morgan from Seattle. I'm Matt from Essex, Ontario. Hey, I'm Dan from Dayton, Mass. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Simon Rich hates it when someone pulls the wool over his eyes. I remember um, when they introduced the calculator in like second or third grade, just like the horror of, my God, I've been, I've been doing this math by hand my whole life. And you had this machine this whole time. You know, you just punch in the buttons, there it is. That's it. And you had it. It's not a new invention. I was thinking about this the other day, like post-Wikipedia, I mean, I, thank goodness I'm not somebody who ever actually learned anything. You know, I, I would hate to be somebody who like, has spent his life learning things. After the existence of, you know, and then Wikipedia comes up. But there are guys out there. There's like 50, 60 year old guys, like professors, who like spent decades like learning stuff. For what? Like wasted years. It's always, it's almost like it would be like a karate expert finding out uh, late in life that there is such a thing as a gun. Like what? So like, how how far away can you can you get someone with it? Like further than an arm's length? Well then, what then? Then I'm done. I'm out. It's bullseye. <laughs> this week, Simon Rich doesn't write about the way love happens. He writes about the way love feels. When you find out your ex girlfriend's dating someone new, it's like she's dating Adolf Hitler. And when you miraculously get a girl's uh, phone number at a party, you know, you, you sort of are expecting to win a MacArthur Genius grant and, uh, and get a phone call from the president. Uh, I enjoy that guy. He's got a new book out, Last Girlfriend on Earth. And the first time you hear Bill Burr, you might think he's just a macho, in-your-face type of comic. He famously hurled insults at an audience in Philadelphia. I resent, I go, it goes beyond hatred, I resent when the crowd is in control. But more often, you'll find him pointing that aggression inward. Plus, Eugene Merman finds an old notebook in his parents' basement. And you'll hear how soul singer Solomon Burke absolutely, positively tears the house down. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by one of our favorite culture critics to recommend stuff worth your time. This week, it's Mark Frauenfelder of BoingBoing.net. Hey, Mark. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jesse? I'm excited to talk about Space Team. Oh, yeah. Space Team is a game for, and I'm quoting directly from their website, people who like discharging clip-jawed flux trunians. Yes, exactly. Um and it's fun because it is a team game. You cannot play it with just one person. So basically, every time you start this game, you're presented with a random control panel on your iPhone that's got knobs and sliders and switches and buttons. And it's like something out of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All these things are labeled with names like Volatile Flush Clamp, Repulsion Locator, Auxiliary Techno Probe. So when the game starts... You start receiving instructions to do things like set the four-stroke plucker to seven or discharge <laughs> the clip-jawed fluxtronian. <laughs> but, but the problem is the, the four-stroke plucker isn't on your control panel. It's on one of your teammates' control panel. So you have to tell them to do it. 
And at the same time, they're telling you to do stuff that's on your control panel. So you're actually doing three things at once. You're giving instructions, receiving instructions, and then making adjustments on this incredibly complex control panel that was randomly generated just seconds ago that you have zero familiarity with. And if you don't do things in a certain amount of time, the control panel starts to shake apart with sparks and smoke, and eventually everyone dies. <laughs> Mark, I feel like you we've had a theme recently, group games that induce yelling. You, you know, you're right. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk about something a little bit quieter. It's a magazine called The Magazine, uh, which is online at the-magazine.org. Um, when I say it's a magazine, I'm using that in a sort of broad spiritual sense rather than a literal physical sense. Tell me what it is. Yeah, this is like just something that I love so much, and it, it could be a model that saves uh, journalism for freelance writers. It was started by uh, Marco Arment, the guy who started Instapaper, and it is a very nice reading experience. It's a lot like reading The New Yorker, but uh, you know, even fewer ads and, and less obtrusive, obnoxious design. It's just very basic text, and the stories are really wonderful. One of my favorites was an article recently about artisanal ice making, something that I didn't even know existed fascinating article. So um, to me, I, I just love the idea that this is a, a new market for journalists and it's it's completely subscriber supported. I wish them the best. It, it's a great experience. Mark Frauenfelder recommends the magazine, which is online at the-magazine.org and the iPad and iPhone game Space Team. Thanks, Mark. You bet, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It seems like Simon Rich has it all together, but his characters really, really, really don't. Rich got his first book deal while he was still in college. That book got him a writing job on Saturday Night Live and a nomination for the Thurber Prize, probably the most prestigious humor writing prize there is. His new book, The Last Girlfriend on Earth and Other Love Stories, is his fifth. It's only five years or so later. His short stories are often about people missing crucial information. And since his new book is about love, that mostly, in this book, means men who really, really don't understand women. Really, 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 really. Simon, uh, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Jesse. Here's my question. Uh, a lot of your early writing was about, um, I guess I would say, kind of lost children, uh-huh. <laughs> and now your writing seems to be about lost 25-year-olds mostly. Yeah, yeah, write what you know, right? Like do you do you feel like you are writing about a version of yourself that is like 6 months in the past? <laughs> I like to think more like like 18 months to 2 years in the past, but uh <laughs> but uh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I from the get-go, I've always liked to write about. I'd always, I've always liked to write comedy about high-stakes situations. So for a while, my books are about things like the apocalypse and heaven and God and, and extinction and, and and things like that. But uh, 
since since college, the highest stakes thing for me has been dating. So <laughs> I started writing about that, and uh, for a while, I was I was writing these sort of uncharacteristically realistic pieces about my love life, but they were so boring uh, and dull. And because uh, it turns out my love life is is kind of boring and dull. So I I sort of hit upon something a few years ago where I was like, maybe instead of writing about love the way it happens, maybe I should write about it the way it it feels. And that's sort of what these stories are. You know, when you find out your ex-girlfriend's dating someone new, it's like she's dating Adolf Hitler. And when you miraculously get a girl's uh, phone number at a party, you know, you you sort of are expecting to win a MacArthur Genius grant and uh, (laughs) I get a phone call from the president. So these pieces, they're, you know, they're, they're weird, but, uh, but yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty autobiographical. What was your first date? My first date was uh, in seventh grade. um, And I was really, really excited because uh, it was a double date and a a popular guy uh, in the class who already had a girlfriend um, from a, from a nearby all girls school asked me to go with him because the other girl apparently had a friend who was going to be, who was perfect for me. And I was really excited. You know, I, I was amazed that, that, uh, that my re- reputation had spread to another school and you know, I'd never been on a <laughs> date before. And, and it was really exciting. And, and when I, when I got there, uh, the reason why I, re- I quickly realized that the reason why she thought we'd be perfect for each other is because we were both four foot one. <laughs> And that was the thing we had in common. And uh, they, uh, and the the, the date really consisted of 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 us standing back to back and them them measuring us and, and taking photographs of us. It was more of an more of like an anthropological study than a date. Uh, but I, I, you know, she was a very nice girl. Uh, I don't think we went on a second date. Uh, but I was really really small. I uh, they had to you know take me to. Um, a hospital and then x-ray my bones to make sure that I, you know, that I would grow a bit more. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, it definitely informed my personality and my writing. I still feel like I, I am that, that four foot five middle schooler sometimes. I, I think everybody feels that way sometimes. You know, there's this part of uh, development where all of the girls have their big growth spurt. Yeah. You know, like in like sixth, seventh grade, something like that? Yeah. It, I remember that. It was like a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back from uh, to school in seventh grade, and you're like, oh, everybody is in on this? <laughs> what was what was your first uh, like girlfriend girlfriend? I, I met my first girlfriend at a, predictably at a... Uh, uh, an academic camp, <laughs> like a lot of like a lot of writers I know, and uh, it's it's a miracle when you finally when you finally meet somebody. Uh, they've done studies; they say it's it's similar to to suddenly trying heroin. It's a it's a euphoric experience, and it's rare when it happens, but when it does, it it does feel like a miracle from heaven. There was a there's a story in the new collection about a guy who has been seeing a girl for a couple of months and he finally commits to being her boyfriend rather than just a guy who's seeing her. And at, at that moment, time freezes and he is visited by alien sex beings. Yes, they're sex aliens. Um, <laughs> and they, 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 they come to him and um, request, uh, request an orgy. And he, uh, 
you know, he can't because as of seconds ago, he's in a relationship. And he's sort of confused as to why they, they picked him because he's sort of a schlubby guy and he's not much of a catch, you know. Uh, why, why do they go across the universe? And it turns out that their eyesight is really poor, but they their noses are really highly developed and their sense of smell is really fine-tuned and, and they can they can smell confidence. And the moment that he entered into a relationship, he had enough confidence and that's why they swooped in. Sort of a relatable experience, I think, for both genders. Somehow, when you're, uh, when you're desperate, the other sex tends to be aware of that and uh, it... Uh, it can hurt your chances. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Simon Rich. His new book is called The Last Girlfriend on Earth. Here he is reading one of the shorter stories, Man Seeking Woman. You. You are an intelligent woman with a sweet and caring soul. You're mature and sophisticated, but you know how to let loose and have a good time. Your first name is Chloe. Me. I'm a thoughtful, intelligent guy with a sense of humor. I like to stay up late talking about the big questions. I have a large, irremovable tattoo of the word Chloe on my chest from a previous relationship. You went to Harvard and wrote at the Harvard Lampoon, which is like this this legendary humor publication there. Um, did you know about it before you, like when you were applying for college? Like, did it did it factor into uh, your your like uh, early admission decisions? Yeah, 100%. That was 100% the reason why I wanted to go. I, I was desperate to to get in so that I could write for The Lampoon and, you know, hopefully someday write for The Simpsons. That was that was my whole goal. I, I had known that a bunch of writers from The Simpsons had been on The Lampoon and, and The Simpsons was my whole world. That was my entire life, was just obsessing over that show. And, and uh, I, I just wanted any any shortcut to to that writer's room uh, that I could find. And, and I, I, I felt so excited when I got in because I would get a chance to maybe work for The Lampoon. I, I feel like in one of your books there was a thank you to your mom for letting you watch uh, six episodes of The Simpsons a day for your entire life. Yeah, it turned out, it turned out to be a, a not-so-unreasonable thing for her to let me do. Yeah, I I, uh, I love that show, and I still love that show. And... and um, it was it was sort of the first i remember writing down uh my favorite jokes and staring at them and trying to figure out how they worked and uh i i think every writer just wants to try to copy their heroes um and that's that's really all i've ever tried to do is just rip off the simpsons as much as i possibly can do you remember one of the jokes that you wrote down from the simpsons i think i i think the the episode um where Bart discovers a comet. Mm-hmm. Somehow that st- st- stuck out of my brain as the funniest episode of The Simpsons. And I, at the time, I had all sorts of nerdy uh, technical theories as to why. But I remember every time it, it being on, just sitting there with a pad trying to like capture, capture it, transcribe it. I, I was I was just obsessed with that. I, I just I'm imagining you right now, like sitting at home staring at a giant you know like those poster paper that that you use for presentations or brainstorming <laughs> and those yeah. really fat tip markers i just imagine just on your wall is written i was saying boo earns <laughs> <You're trying. laughs> yeah no i was i was just a, a full-fledged simpsons freak and um if i could go back and tell my my uh 12 year old self you know it 
you might be a foot shorter than everybody, but keep watching The Simpsons. Here, things are going to turn around for you someday. You know. <laughs> do you have I mean, a Do you have a feeling about what made The Simpsons so resonant for you? Besides the fact that it was it was and is really great. I I think it was that the jokes, not all the jokes, but but many of the jokes were relationship based, and they were story based, and character based, and um. They had they had heart to it, and and uh, so much of the humor that I watched growing up was so negative and so uh, nasty, and even and some of it was really funny. You know, you watch Married with Children, uh, it, it it is some of it is really good, but it's nasty and 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 cruel, and uh, and and also growing up watching stand up comedy, you know, on, on Comedy Central, a lot of that stuff was really negative and hostile you know even the even the stuff i that i respected i i I just it reminded me of the bullies who picked on me you know at school that sort of nasty mocking humor and uh there was a real uh um warmth to a lot of the jokes on the simpsons uh and um i uh it it really it, it really um it felt like it stood apart from the rest of it in its earnestness I had a conversation with my shrink the other day, and I was telling him about how uh, sometimes I don't want to watch upsetting television shows. I just want to watch Cheers. Right. And uh, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't handle watching Breaking Bad. Right. And uh, he says he says to me in that way that uh, in that way that a, a shrink does, where they're asking you a question to tell you something. Mm. He says, "Think back to your childhood." <laughs> do you think do you think there's any reason you might prefer a a show where all of the conflicts are positively resolved? <laughs> <laughs> but that I think is one of the essential one of the central parts of the Simpsons is that it is a classic, you know, James L Brooks made sure that that show was a classic family sitcom, which is to say that as much as Homer chokes Bart, <laughs> right? <laughs> and as much as, you know, they visit a crazy underground world that is ruled by singing jockeys. Um, it, it, central to it is these conflicts coming up for a family, a nuclear family, and then them finding resolution to those conflicts. Absolutely. And and uh, the shows that I love, you know, the ones that, that I'm sure Brooks had in mind when he was helping create the the template for those early seasons of the Simpsons you know shows like Isle of Lucy or even you know the honeymooners uh the way that relationships are are are, are dealt with on those shows you know uh there's something really relatable and universal about it it's also kind of comforting absolutely i mean uh i would i would never write a book that didn't have a happy ending i mean <laughs> i i can write a story that doesn't have a happy ending but uh but um, yeah, my my favorite writers, uh, they always put they always give some redemption at the end. Uh, I think that's that's one of the things that makes a story gratifying. So your new book, which is called "The Last Girlfriend on Earth and Other Love Stories," I mentioned in the introduction. Almost every one of these stories is about a guy who is missing or not getting some element of romantic love with a lady. Yeah, that's that's pretty fair. Um 
which of these are things that you have encountered in in your life? Which of these blind spots? Oh, I think I think all of these stories are 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 very personal, and I I think they're things that everybody has has dealt with. You know, there's there's a story um, about a sort of through the looking glass parody where there you know sort of like a Alice in Wonderland type girl who's alone uh, with nothing to do on her estate and she meets a magical talking goat in her mirror and he pops out and he, they have adventures and they steal tea and biscuits and, and, and frolic through the woods and then uh, he tries to kiss her <laughs> and she's like whoa we're just friends uh, so the story about the imaginary friend who wants to be more than friends but she's weirded out because he's a goat. Um, I think that's something that everybody has has been on both sides of. You know, a, a relationship you think is platonic, and it turns out one of the two people have have ulterior motives, uh, and it ruins everything. There's a great moment in that one where she says, "Well, this won't work. I'm only seven years old, for one thing." And he says, "Well, I'm only eight. And she says, "But how? How is that? What is that in goat years?" Yeah, and he hasn't never really had a response to that. And she's like, "It's mid fifties, isn't it?" And he sort of changes the subject. Uh, and then you know, there's a story about um, a guy who is dating the title story, the last girlfriend on earth. He's um, uh, there's a plague, and it, it wipes out all the women and leaves all the men. But his girlfriend just happens to have this freak. Uh, genetic immunity so she is the only remaining girl on earth and happens to be the one he's dating and uh, there starts to be a lot of rivalry over her uh, since she's the only remaining potential mate for humanity for for male humanity and so you know he he has to fend off the president and he has to fend off uh, you know uh, all sorts of he has to fend off Cornell West all sorts of eligible bachelors, you know, senators and, and athletes and, and, and kings. And uh, I, I think everyone has, has been in that experience, too, of, of being so in love with, with their partner, but also paranoid that uh, that someone better is going to come along. Almost, almost always the, not without exception, but the preponderance of these protagonists, the guys in this situation, are the stupid slash blind slash pigheaded they're 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 not the good ones no they they're not always the good ones uh sometimes they learn their lesson true but, uh you know i i think uh the the present is an example of that the time travel piece mm-hmm. about a a time traveler who uh, he's a scientist who um, uh, is very obsessed with building his uh, his time machines, but but kind of neglects his girlfriend and uh, gets her the same terrible present every year uh, on her birthday. And uh, one year, predictably, uh, he forgets um, again, and he decides, and and she's crying, and he's apologizing, and she's like, well, there's nothing you could do. It's not like you can go back in time and, you know, get me a new present. So, of course, his eyes light up, and he does just that. And he's trying to think, well, what can he, what can he get this girl, you know, to make up for all the years of, of neglect, you know? Uh, and he's thinking, you know, a, a, a jewel from, from ancient Egypt or, you know, a, 
an original copy of uh, Romeo and Juliet or some some ancient thing, and he's trying to figure it out. You know, a rose from the Garden of Eden, and ultimately the present he decides to give her is that he's going to go back in time and make it so that they never met and that she never had to go through the misery of dating him at all. And so there are pieces in there that at least the guy uh, picks up on something. Have have you have you had that situation come up in your life, like like the scientist in your story who works and works and forgets anniversaries? Oh, definitely. I, I think that um, I think those are very personal pieces. That one, uh, uh, and also, yeah, there 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 are a number there are a number of pieces in the book with with that motif of a of, of a character who is is so busy working that they. They maybe uh, ignore other aspects of their lives. Uh, I really, really love writing, and I've always loved it. And it's something that if I don't do it for a few hours every day, I get uh, really antsy. But it's something that I've, I've, I think, learned to balance a little bit better uh, with the rest of my life. But at the, at the same time, I mean, I know this from my own experience. It is very easy to slip into that and lose track of the other <laughs> the other people in your life because it's easier just to be responsible for one thing that's in front of you exactly and 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 you know the the stories that you the problems you need to solve in writing are never as as serious as uh the problems you need to resolve in your life and uh you know especially when you when you're a writer like I am where you're always looking for a happy resolution you end up with these neat, tidy stories that, uh, you know, real life is never, it's always a lot thornier. We'll have more with Simon Rich after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is a co-sponsor of the 5th Annual Women in Comedy Festival, happening this weekend in Boston. The festival kicks off Thursday, March 21st, with SNL alumni Rachel Dratch and Horatio Sands performing with other top improvisers from the UCB Theater. For comedy fans, the festival is an incredible opportunity to see some of the best comics working today, not to mention some of my personal favorites, like past Bullseye guest Maria Bamford. For more information and tickets, visit www.womenincomedyfestival.com. Hi, this is Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host a show about being new moms. Have you ever pretended to be a sleeping rock to make your three-year-old play by herself? How about scream singing to make yourself think you aren't screaming? You're singing really, really loud! Join us every week for more helpful tips on creative parenting. And remember, you don't have to park your toddler in front of the TV to be one bad mother. Subscribe for free on iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Simon Rich. He's the author of several books, and up until recently, he was a writer on Saturday Night Live. We're talking about his newest, The Last Girlfriend on Earth. Here's another selection, Dog Missed Connections. Saw you at the dog run yesterday morning. You were wearing a leather collar and running around in circles. I was wearing a gold collar and trying to have sex with you. At one point, I managed to mount you, and we sort of had sex for a couple of seconds. You shook me off, though, and ran away. I'm interested in getting to know you a little better. We obviously have chemistry, and even though we just met once, I really sensed a connection. I'll be back at the dog run tomorrow morning. 
Hope to see you there. <laughs> I saw you at the window of my master's car during the traffic jam. We barked at each other for a while. I thought you made some interesting points. Would love to meet up sometime for a casual, low-key date. Maybe we could go to Central Park together and eat garbage. Open to anything. <laughs> Spotted you yesterday afternoon helping a blind human cross the street. I can tell you've got a gentle soul and a caring heart. Would love to mount you violently from behind and have aggressive sex with your body. <laughs> Saw you by the dumpster eating a pile of what appeared to be human vomit. You seem like someone who doesn't take himself too seriously. <laughs> Not sure if you're male or female, but either way, I'd love to smell your genitals. Let me know if you're intrigued. You moved to the Bay Area a year or two ago to work for Pixar. Yeah. I was wondering, I wasn't sure if you were allowed to say that for a second. I thought, a film production company in the Bay Area, but then I remembered <laughs> that was only Pixar. <laughs> I, I, that's sort of all I can say, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I, that's why I came out here. That's why I left SNL. I think that w without talking specifically uh, about the work that you're working on, um, one of the things that's special about the work that Pixar has done in the past, I think is also one of the things that uh, was really special about your early work, which is that I don't think anyone in the, in the medium of film has ever been able to so wonderfully capture the perspective of childhood. Yeah, I think they've done amazing stuff. I, I, I put them right up there with, uh, with The Simpsons and with Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I, I think it's Judy Bloom. I think, has amazing, amazingly vivid uh, portrayals of kids. Uh, but yeah, it's really hard to do the stuff they've done, and I, I, I feel like I've learned a lot from them um, working there, but even before working there, just watching their stuff. I mean, uh, like a story in, in, in The Last Girlfriend on Earth, like Unprotected, is basically... Uh, that's a story told from the perspective of a condom uh, in a teenage boy's wallet who uh, is waiting to finally be used and, and waiting and waiting and waiting as a, <laughs> as a teenage boy navigates uh, his, uh, his burgeoning love life. But that story is, is basically a ripoff of, of a Toy Story, you know, which is another coming-of-age piece uh, about a young man told from the point of view of these anthropomorphic characters who live in his room. You know, it's very similar. That was sort of me trying to do a, I guess, like a R-rated <laughs> Toy Story. Do you do you still find it easy to um, slip into that feeling of being adolescent or being pre-adolescent? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think that my favorite characters to write about are always characters that know less than they should or know less than the people around them. And I think that even though I, I've, I've, I've started to, I used to write mostly about, literally about child characters, and now I, most of my characters tend to be grown-ups, I, I think I still write from that same place of, of, of ignorance and, and naivety that I, that I relate to. Like there's a story in, in Last Girlfriend called I Love Girl, which is from the point of view of a, of a caveman. Um, who's in love with a girl whose name is Girl. Um, his, his name is Oog, but she loves Boog, and it's about the his desperate struggle to win her. And that character, you know, he literally, he he can't count to three. He, he knows one really well, and he knows two okay, but three gives him trouble. <laughs> and uh, 
he uh even though he's technically a man um he uh i, I think he's he's just as naive and and uh desperate uh and hopefully as as sympathetic as as the kids that that I used to write about what what feelings do you do you remember the most vividly two things one was knowing that there was information that i that i didn't understand and being frustrated by that by sort of the limits of my knowledge and the other thing was a sort of terror that I, uh, that things were going to be out of my hands, that things were out of my control. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know. Your parents can just tell you you're going to a new school now. You know, a lot of, a lot of stuff is out of your hands when you're a kid. And I think those two emotions are they're not specific to the, chi- the experience of childhood. I think they're pretty universal. I think everyone feels that way sometimes. That's why you see children appear in so many films that are geared towards adults because they're, in a way the child experience is not unique it's it's more of like an amplification of what of what all grown-ups experience can i tell you what really upset me when i was a kid yeah i um couldn't figure out between the cartoon the world of professional wrestling and the show the a team Right. Which was the real Mr. T. Yeah, that is confusing. It really upset me. Or is it none of them? <sighs> or all of them? I remember um, when they introduced the calculator in like second or third grade. Just like the horror of, my God, I've been, I've been doing this math by hand my whole life. And you had this machine this whole time, you know, that... You just punch in the buttons, there it is. Uh, that's it. And you had it. It's not a new invention. I was thinking about this the other day, like, post-Wikipedia, I mean, I, thank goodness I'm not somebody who ever actually learned anything. You know, I, I would hate to be somebody who, like, has spent his life learning things after the existence of, you know, and then Wikipedia comes up. But there are guys out there. There's, like, 50, 60-year-old guys, like, professors who, like, spent decades, like, learning stuff. For what? Like, wasted years. It's always. It's almost like it would be like a karate expert finding out uh, late in life that there is such a thing as a gun. Like what? So like, how how far away can you can you get someone with it? Like further than an arm's length? Well, then what? Then then I'm done. I'm out. Well, Simon, thanks so much for joining me on Bullseye. It's, it's always great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Jesse. Simon Rich. His book is called The Last Girlfriend on Earth. If you want to hear about Simon Rich's obsession with The Simpsons, head to our website for our extended interview. It's at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I interview a lot of comedians on this show, and overall, they're an intelligent bunch. Comics are sharp. They're articulate. They have a nuanced perspective on life. It's basically their job. All of this is true of Eugene Merman. But as he admits in his new special, those abilities don't always translate to good grades in school. He found proof in his parents' attic. 
my, uh, my parents recently moved from my childhood home, and I had to go back and save everything. Um, that, not everything. <laughs> I didn't try to stop them. I just went to get all my things from my childhood. And uh, I used to put everything in the attic, and sometimes I'd put things I cared about, and sometimes, because it was easier, I'd put a bag of trash, <laughs> which came back only to haunt me. But to be like, oh, a notebook I love, oh, a bag of hair. Um, but I found this old notebook. This is an old notebook I have, uh, like all our old notebooks, uh, with my favorite comic book characters and, uh, and bands and stuff. And this is X-Men and X-Factor and Guns and Roses and the Eagles. And, of course, an anarchy symbol dripping with blood. Because who doesn't understand small localized governments like a 16-year-old? But it had all this uh, awesome stuff in it. And this is, I don't know how it was like for where you went to school, but for where I went to school, you had to have a 2.0 grade point average to be able to leave your campus and go downtown and start a family. Uh, And this is an old letter written to my parents. I know it looks like a letter, like, telling my parents I don't have polio or something. Like, you know, they're like, stop, Eugene is polio-free. He does not need to go to a sanatorium. But it's actually a letter that says, our records indicate that Eugene has a GPA of 1.28 and is not eligible to be on his own. (laughs) This is an old report card. It's a new report card. uh, It's an old report card. This is chemistry 10th grade. First quarter, I got a D. And then I was like, I got to stop trying so hard. Then I got an F, and then, uh, and then I was like, well, I do want to leave this terrible place. And I got a D plus, and then a D, and then on my final, I got an A. Yeah, because I knew that if I tried for three hours out of the year, I would still understand what happens in Breaking Bad. The only reason to have taken chemistry. This is a handwritten letter to my parents from my guidance counselor when people still used hands. And it says, he is of average to above average ability and does not appear to have a learning disability. I think if something says you don't appear to have a learning disability, it literally means you appear to have a learning disability. If someone, they're like, we can't tell if your son acts like he's disabled or he is disabled. So we don't know. He's doing the same as a person with a learning disability. Like, no one says he doesn't appear to. You know who doesn't appear to? Steve Jobs. Nobody's like, that guy, he doesn't appear to, so nobody brings it up. He doesn't appear, yes, I appear to. I appear to have a learning disability. Do I? Who knows? I did spend six years in special ed. Anyway. Eugene Merman from his new comedy special. It's called An Evening of Comedy in a Fake Underground Laboratory. It's out now on CD and DVD. What's comedian Bill Burr's problem with rescue dogs? Find out after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. Intentional. Support for the Bullseye podcast comes from Audible.com, provider of digital audiobooks and more. 
Audible offers over 100,000 downloadable titles. Bullseye listeners might enjoy How Music Works by David Byrne. For a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership, go to audiblepodcast.com slash bullseye. If I told you John Hodgman, Kristen Shaw, Mark Marin, and Eugene Merman were on a cruise ship together, enjoying a concert by John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, what would you think? Maybe that HBO was rebooting The Love Boat? The truth is even better. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is 10 amazing comedians and four great music acts sailing the Caribbean. And the best part is, you're invited. I put it all together, and you won't believe who we've got on board. Check out the full lineup and more information at our website, boatparty.biz. Yes, really, boatparty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. Comedy. Music. Shuffleboard. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bill Burr is the kind of comedian you might imagine when you think of that sort of hyper-masculine, aggressive comic. He's got a short buzz clip, a heavy Boston accent. His face is skinny and sort of hungry-looking. He's ferocious on stage. But he turns that ferocity on himself just as much as he turns it on the world. Sure, Bill's against political correctness, but he's always about three degrees off from what you might expect. Of course, if you're in a comedy club watching him, you should expect to be surprised. Bill Burr and I spoke in 2010. Here he is firing a bold shot across the bow from his comedy special, Let It Go. I got a dog recently, everybody. That's like the big thing. Yes, I did. I'm psyched. I went down to the pound. I got one of those free dogs. Free dog. That's how I say it, too. I don't say I rescued a dog. I hate when people say that stuff. They say, hey, she's a rescue. I rescued her. Really? Did you pull her out of a burning building? Did you jump in a river with your wingtip still on with no concern for your own safety? Or did you just go down to the pound and get a free dog and she... Isn't that what you did? I actually, I did not want to get a rescue dog. I did not want to do that. My girl was all about it. She's like, we should rescue a dog. You want to rescue a dog? I'm like, no, no, I don't. She's like, why not? I go, because I think a lot of the dogs down the pile might be a little in the head. You ever thought about that? Dude, the shelter is not a pet store. That is like Shawshank for a golden retriever. Why don't we just go down to the prison and rescue an inmate and just roll the dice that maybe the guy was wrongly convicted? You out of your mind? I want a brand new 2009 bulldog, all right? I don't want some 1995 half a Labrador where part of its ear chewed off, you know? I gotta put together its backstory. Every time I go to use the toaster, it starts freaking out. Cause his last owner hung him from the ceiling fan every time the Jets didn't cover the over, you know? So I saw you perform this in in the following context, and I was talking to, to my producer, Julia, about this. It was, uh, first of all, it was a McSweeney's benefit. It was a benefit for, uh, for 826 Valencia, the, uh, the literary um, classes for kids operation. Slash donut shop they have exactly. out there, right? So it's all strip malls. Everything has a theme. They, it, so it was, a, it was sort of a, it was a very uh, Dave Eggers, Vendela Vita crowd. It was a beautiful book buying and reading crowd. 
Um, you were performing on a you were performing on a bill with a lot of comics whose whose tone was was matched that. I mean, I I, I can't recall exactly who all was on there. I think probably our our, my, my, our friend uh, Al Madrigal, but maybe booked the show. But it's a lot of a, a lot of sort of um, comics who seem like charming, quirky comics. Yes, and uh, you followed a dog act, and you know the the rule is you you never want to follow animals or children. Um, this dog act went out, and not only was it a dog act, uh, it was called Someone or Other and His Amazing Mutts, if I remember correctly. But it was fantastic. This was the greatest oh, dog I act. Oh, I remember that. It was such a blast. And, part and they of had, the, like, hula skirts on and stuff, yeah, the dogs did. And the premise of this whole thing is, the premise of this whole dog act is that all of these dogs are rescue dogs, right? And they talk a little bit about that in the act while they're having them jump through hoops and... <laughs> These dogs are just adorable. It's a man, his beautiful daughter. It's just a completely charming act from 1920. Okay. And then you come out and you open with this bit about how you don't think rescue dogs should be called rescue dogs. And <laughs> it made me wonder it, it made me wonder if you're at a point in your career where you do the most difficult material in your repertoire in any given context, just to amuse yourself or test yourself. Um, I don't know why I did that. That could have been <laughs> somebody in the crowd annoyed me. Sometimes if somebody annoys me in the crowd or just something is said. Or there's, there's also a thing where if just something is so cute and so adorable and you have to go on after it and, and you have more of a harsh thing, you might as well, you just have to go over the top with it. It just kind of shocks people into whatever the hell it is that you're doing. But, I mean, I wasn't trying to disrespect that guy. Your stage persona is, like, about the least chilled performance that could possibly exist. Um, <laughs> you're like, I mean, you're, you're, you're sort of a, you're a sweet guy in, in, in real life, you know, coming over to the house, playing with my dog and everything. It's all an act. Um, Mispronounce but... my name and watch what I do to the room. <laughs> Throw a temper tantrum like a five-year-old. Well, speak. We might as well. We might as well play this. There's, uh, there's this clip of you a, a couple of years ago uh, performing in an Opie, Opie and Anthony stand-up comedy show um, in Philadelphia. You're gonna judge me on that? You're gonna blame the victim? No, there? I'm. I'm not gonna blame the victim. But it's a. Tr I mean, it's a truly spectacular performance in more ways than one. I mean, it's like awe-inspiring. In basically every well, possible way. Can I, can way. I set it up before you? Yeah. Can, tell just tell in defense please of myself. Do, please do. What happened was we, we went there and it was, uh, you know, it was like 10,000 people sort of filing in. It was right outside of Philly. These maniacs down there were wearing like Eagles jerseys and throwing a football, football around. They were like tailgating uh -huh. for a comedy show. And it was already outside. There were lawn seats for like a third of the crowd. So as far as like, you know, for a stand-up show, you got pretty much everything working against you other than it, the only thing that was missing is it didn't rain. We went out, and the first guy goes out there, and it was just, I mean, there might have been 2,000 people sitting down and another couple thousand sort of milling around trying to find which patch of grass they were going to sit on. So he basically gets booed off stage. Totally not his fault. It's like broad daylight. The whole thing was awful. And basically, I went on three hours after that. And the ideal comedy show is about 90 minutes. And uh, they started booing me. And fortunately, I'd been booed before. So the first time you get booed, it's, it's shocking. But then the next times it's it's not uh, uh, it's not an unfamiliar sound. So you're just like, <laughs> oh, this. 
well, okay, if this is going to happen, I'm not going to go down by myself. I'm going to take a few of you with me. I said a lot of ignorant stuff, but I was, I was just trying to make them as mad as, as they made me. And uh, you know what amazed me was the amount of people who saw that and thought, A, that I was in a comedy club, and B, that I just walked out on stage doing that. Like, I got a lot of emails <laughs> like, you know, you got some nerve. Those people came there to see a show. Where do you get it's like do you honestly think I, I would why would you do something like that? So let's hear a little bit of this and it will be indeed a, a brief clip and for the sensitive eared um there will be some bleep profanity in this clip of uh It's gonna uh, sound like Morse code of my guest Bill Burr on the stage in Philadelphia. <laughs> situation like that where you're facing a hostile crowd and philadelphia is legendary for its hostile crowds i mean they would boo, they'd boo mike schmidt off the stage of the hall of fame induction ceremony if they had the opportunity if um, he did one little thing wrong absolutely they would have <laughs> i'm surprised when he cried they didn't if, the, if he showed up and he'd shaved his mustache maybe yeah anything anything can set him off they're like uh like, uh, what are those? Those killer bees. You know what I mean? You scratch your head too much, it makes them mad. And they just jump on you. It's the same thing. It's the same sort of concept. But I also don't think that it's helped that they've gotten so much coverage. The question is, this, <laughs> you're, you're in the, what, you're looking at an audience of 10,000 very discontented, discontented people who are booing you and, you know, or at least many of Some them of the are booing you. Some of the most out-of-shape, and... ugly people I've ever seen in my life. They were an absolute... <laughs> train wreck of a crowd they really were there so, wasn't really anything redeemable about them and they were watching for my money <laughs> some of the best comics in the country that night if you saw the lineup that night it was insane 20 years from now they're going to say all the comics that were on that show and they treated them like ass <laughs> even the ones that they didn't boo you had to go out there was this whole dance dance for me like they were shooting at your feet and it was like uh and that's why i went out there so angry is because i resent i go it goes beyond hatred i resent when the crowd is in control i literally get i that's one of the few things that offends me like how dare you it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is the comedian bill burr he sounds like a classic in your face macho sort of comic but a lot of the time he ends up pointing that aggression inward Here's a clip from his most recent stand-up special. You people are all the same. I gotta be honest with you, I'm kinda, I'm kinda like jealous of the way my dad gets to talk to my mom sometimes. You know? Where are all those old school women you can just take your day out on? You know? When did they stop making those angels? Who just knew it had nothing to do with them, they just sit there and let you blow out the lines, right? What a luxury. Right? To fail all day, you come home and download all your insecurities on this other person. How was your day? How the f*** was your day? 
I'm out here making decisions. Take these kids away from me. Give me a damn drink. Oh, with the tears. <laughs> Why do you think you're so um, so interested in in making everything a challenge? I mean, every one of your setups is something where you start with... Often a comedian will start a bit by sort of stating something that everyone can agree on, um, getting everyone on the same page, you know. uh, Does everybody remember the Kool-Aid man? Uh, We all know that (laughs) men are different than women. Like, whatever it is, right? Um, it's getting everyone on the same page. Oh yeah, and I you wrote, seem, I wrote volumes of that stuff. And you seem <laughs> and you seem to like you seem to start every one of your bits with something like it's the exact opposite. Like pick, it, it's as though you look took a look through your notebook and said which of these things will upset and bother people the most, and then you went up on stage and talked about them until you found something that was funny about them. Well, it's more, uh, no, all the stuff that I say, if I'm not being ridiculous, I do believe. So that's a big thing. And I have to believe it unless I'm being absolutely ridiculous. Like I love like, uh, like that style that Will Ferrell does. I I wish I could do more stuff like that, but I'm, I'm more of a, uh, opinionated, like I kind of say what, how I feel, but there's two reasons why I do it that way. One is people are so educated to comedy like it's it's constantly evolving and like you 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 lead them to the right if you're going to the left and at the the last second you know because people you know they they try to guess where you're going so you know you you can't put the uh you know the cart before the horse so to speak so um it has to do that and it's also something doing a lot of difficult rooms it was also a way that i learned to shut people up you know I, i would just yeah just say something that would get people to be like well why why would you say that I got, well, where's he going with this? And that, that, that all came from doing hell rooms. I mean, I think there, there are other comedians out there who are, um, who are as aggressive as you or as no holds barred as you or as no topic is sacred or et cetera, et cetera. There are other comics who have that tone. And, I, and what impresses me about your comedy is that you're also not afraid to undercut yourself in that. I mean, you have... You have a bit. I, I was just listening to your. Uh, I was just listening to your podcast, and you were talking about someone complaining about your material uh, being homophobic because it contains uh, a, that was the, a what, sort of segment built around um, built around the idea of guys calling each other. Um, and I suppose we'll probably bleep it for the radio, but yeah. And the premise of that bit is is actually much more about you trying to figure out how to be a better person. This is how it works with guys. Anytime you do anything remotely sensitive, heartwarming, anything that's going to make you more of a loving, caring individual, immediately all your guy friends suggest that maybe, just maybe, you want to suck a d- Oh, it's brutal. Even if you do something smart, right? Like it's raining out. He's got an umbrella! What a f- Oh my god! What are you afraid of the water? Put your shoulders up, you f- Jesus Christ! Would you pull that thing out of your f- Oh, it's brutal! 
I mean, a lot of that's special. It's funny. It's basically, I think I was in, in a period, I'm just examining my anger. So let it go kind of meant two things. It was one, when I get into a, a bar room debate, you know, with some plumber or whatever, right? And we're going at it. And I will so argue my point to the, just like, I just won't stop arguing my point. And a lot of times people, just to end it, will agree with me. And that's not enough for me. I'll be like, no, dude, don't just agree with me. You know, don't agree with it. And then there's always that person going, all right, Bill, just let it go. Let it go. So it was a combination of that. And then also me trying to let go of being this, this, uh, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the angry guy. It's the exact dude. I don't want to be that person who creates tension in his house and your kids are afraid when you pull in. I mean, I want them to respect me, my hypothetical kids that I'm talking about, <laughs> like they exist. You know, come home like one of those sitcom dads. You know, you're whistling a tune, you take off your Bing Crosby hat. <laughs> Put on your Isn't that the again? guy you want to be? Zip right? it up all the way, then zip That's it down That's right, halfway. make somebody waffles. <laughs> be that guy. That guy that, you know, lights up a room rather than everybody's like, oh, God, Frank's here. Jesus. Is he drinking? All right, I got to go. Bill Burr's most recent stand-up special is called You People Are All the Same. You can also catch Bill Burr's Monday morning podcast at BillBurr.com. That's Burr with two R's. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's this old story that when Solomon Burke headlined the Apollo in New York, he used to set up shop in the house while the openers performed. When I say set up shop, I mean that literally. The story is that while the first couple acts were doing their thing, he'd be in the cheap seats selling sandwiches to patrons, you know, to make a little pocket money. And then a few minutes later, he'd go up on stage and tear the house down. Because if there's one thing Solomon Burke knew he could do, no matter what, no matter how many sandwiches he'd just been selling in the concert hall, it was tear the house down. When he performed, Solomon Burke sat on a huge throne in the middle of the stage. It was huge because Burke was huge in every possible way. He had a huge voice, huge charm. And at his peak, he must have weighed 300 pounds. There's only one great album-length recording of Solomon Burke performing live, but it's enough. It's called Soul Alive. I want everybody, everybody in the house tonight. All around the world, come on and put your hands together. Get up on your feet. Let's shake this place tonight. Let me see you shake your stuff. It's Washington, D.C., 1983. On the radio then in the district, it's, I guess, Rick James, Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson. In this little club, though, where Solomon Burke is performing, it's nothing about the king of pop. It's all about the king of rock and soul. Soul Alive is a 
show, a, a real show, a journey. An hour and a half of a man pulling the audience, pushing the audience, teasing the audience. He challenges the crowd. He says, you're not with me tonight. They yell back, we are. Are you with me tonight? By the time he tells them to love his big, fat, fine self. That's what he says. Big, fat, fine self. I'll bring my big, fat, fine self They are mesmerized. They are enthralled to King Solomon. And if you're listening to the album, so are you. On Soul Alive, it might as well be 1983 or 1967 or 2006. What's important is that Solomon Burke is being Solomon Burke. He's pleading and preaching and doing what he did best. Tearing. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Thanks this week to David LaTulip and Bill Helgeson at KALW in San Francisco for engineering help. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener 